this Wednesday. Again, I don't know of any of our people that are in the hospital at this moment, but we depend upon you, the members of the congregation, to keep me keep us uh, alert on it. Um, I remember one time about four or five years ago, I got up there on one floor at the med center, and I was anticipating that like room 14 would be on the left. In reality, room 14 was on the right. So I just opened this door and looked in, and here was a couple from our church, but it wasn't who I was looking for. And I was startled, and they were even more startled because they were trying to keep it secret that they were up in the hospital. But God doesn't often do that for us pastors. It just doesn't work that way. We need to be informed. If you know people that are in the church that are, have needs or in the hospital, please let us know. Let's pray. Father, you're our God, and we think from all that we know that the scriptures are telling us that you're the God of those people of the Mideast right now. We know that some of them are Christian people that are being harassed ultimately by Satan, and we pray that you would protect them. We pray that you would work in the hearts and minds of those who can give physical protection and to those who can take care of their needs in a, as we say, a humanitarian way. Give them wisdom. And we pray that this awful and evil way of dealing with uh, people can be brought to an end. We pray for the peace of Christ to break forth and rule in that part of the world that is so resistant to the gospel and is almost like Satan's last stronghold of one culture. So we pray that that would be overcome by your word and by your spirit and by the testimony of many saints. We pray in Christ's name, amen. About 1971, a man by the name of Francis Schaeffer decided to write a book called True Spirituality. And in this book, he tells uh, in the preface to it that it was an effort that really began in the 1940s. The year I was born, 1948, Francis Schaeffer had been a pastor in St. Louis, and he felt called to leave uh, the United States and to travel to Switzerland and open up a study center, and he began to work with uh, people from all over the world who were uh, having troubles with understanding Christianity in a modern world. Now, in his studies during that time, he gave a number of lectures that ultimately were reduced down in 1971 to this book, True Spirituality. Now, there's, there's just myriads of books on what we would call the Christian life. I must have at least a half a dozen of them dating back to the Puritans, back to John Calvin's view of the Christian life, and there's just been in every generation, dozens of people that write on this. But most all who write on this come to their material with the assumption 
that the people that they're writing to are already Christians and already accept the Christian worldview. Now, when Francis Schaeffer wrote True Spirituality, he understood that there was a tremendous threat to the Christian worldview and that it was having an effect on the Christian population uh, as well. And so when he began to write this book, he had in mind the whole change that had taken place uh, in the world in its way of uh, approaching truth, uh, in the way of approaching life, and then that how this was just a terrible threat to the Christian perspective. Now, I can remember in the 10th grade, uh, so we're back about 1964, and I'm in an elective high school class on psychology. And I enjoyed the professor immensely. He was a banty kind of a person, and he was always moving around and up and down. But he was always talking about the assured results of psychology. That was his word over and over again. These are the assured results of psychology. And the more I listened to what that man said, I began to think, I've never heard anything like this in my home. I've never heard anything like this in my grandparents' home, my aunts' and uncles' homes, people in the church's homes. Where's all this stuff coming from? And I'm not sure today that I could put it together for you and tell you where that man was coming from, but it was, a, it was not a Christian worldview. Now, I, here I can remember that. Uh, it's been like that over and over again. I remember when Chip and I were doing campus work, and we had a man that was on the Auburn campus. Now, if you were to talk to some of the people at Briarwood Presbyterian Church back in the 1980s when Chip and I were starting out with campus ministry, they referred to the University of Alabama and then the Christian University, and that would be Auburn. Well. Bill Gresham came to us one day in campus staff meeting in the summer, and he said, I want to play something for you. And what he began to play was a recording of the uh, uh, initiation process of, of students coming from high school into the University of Alabama, and it had been recorded, and he had it. In what the man was saying as he was lecturing is the goal of the first two years of, of your intellectual life here at, at the University of Auburn will be to take away from you all of these preconceived notions that you have learned in your home, in whatever it was, and to take these away from you in order that in the second two years that we can inculcate into you those things that are really true about life so that you can be successful in the world. Now, you're sitting there thinking, you're not believing that somebody's just flat out saying this, but that's what the man was saying. Now, this is what's going on all around us. How do we think about this? Now, the problem is not merely modern. The problem is ancient as well. And when Paul wrote a letter... 
And the letter was the one to Colossians, if you want to turn there to the first chapter. He was dealing with a modern problem of multiple worldviews in Asia Minor. Now, Paul didn't plant this church. A man named Paphras, Epaphras, who was probably an understudy of Paul, while Paul was in Ephesus for three and a half years, probably Epaphras became an understudy of Paul, and then he morphed over 70 or 80 miles to the city of Colossae, and he started this church. That's what we assume. And now he is dealing with these worldviews, and it's a conflict of worldviews. One of the books that's written about the book of Colossians is called Conflict in Colossae. And it's, it's about just multiple worldviews that were in place at the time. So beginning in uh, chapter 1 at verse 9, Paul says about, and this is a prayer, he says, So from the day we heard about your coming to Christ, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience, with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Speaking of Christ now, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything that he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now, in this study that Schaefer is doing, he is talking about true spirituality, the true way a Christian should be living in this world. And what we need to understand again and again, and it's very basic, but it's just so foundational that it has to be stated right out front, and that is to have a, a spiritual life, you have to be born into it. Now, we look at people out here in the world, and they're living their life, some of them very long. I'll just say that if my wife's mother, who died about two weeks ago on Monday, were still alive, this would be her 93rd birthday. So people can live a very long time. And some of these people live this way, 
Uh, but none of them have come into life without being born. And we say, well, that's so obvious. Well, it is, but nobody comes to spiritual life without a spiritual birth. You have people who are born into this world and live in this world and perish in this world, but never experience a spiritual birth. Unfortunately, we have people that come into the church, and they've been born in this world, and they've lived in this world, and they may have lived in the church all their life, and the best that you could say about them is they're churched people. You cannot say that these people sometimes in your church are spiritually alive. To be a person that has a true spirituality, you must have a true spiritual beginning, a true spiritual birth. And so when Paul deals with this, he he talks about this uh, down in verses uh, 13 and 14. He says of people that have become Christians, he, the Father, has delivered us, the believers, from the domain of darkness. He has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, and in that beloved Son we have redemption. We have the forgiveness of our sins. People can live in their church, live in this world, a very, very long time and never experience this at all. Now, when you talk to these people, they can be knowledgeable, but they're not going to be compliant to the teachings of the Scripture. They might have an outward form of religion, but they're not going to have a heart for it. They're not even going to have a mind for it. And so what Paul is saying here, this is how spiritual life begins. It's very clear. Now, we are a people who know how to get along. That's a problem with our culture. Um, If you go back to the history of warfare, And you watch the Japanese in World War II. When they shot Admiral Yamamoto out of the sky, and that intellectual leadership was gone, the Japanese hierarchy were in a spin. When on the battlefield a German captain or field officer was killed, or a Japanese field officer was killed, you know, oftentimes, in the German sense, the soldiers might not do anything. Oftentimes, in the Japanese sense, they ran around literally in circles. They didn't know what to do. That's not been an American problem. If you kill a captain, a lieutenant took over. If you killed a lieutenant, a sergeant took over. If you killed a sergeant, a corporal took over. And if a private had to take over, it wasn't long before somebody came and right on the spot promoted him. Sometimes from a private to a captain, right on the spot. You were at the beginning of the day a private, you go to sleep, you're a captain. Why? They knew how to get things done. That's a problem in our culture. We know how to do things. And so it's very easy to appear to be spiritual. 
That's, that's a very easy reality. But I want you to see what the scriptures are saying here. God rescued us. Now, in that language, God is active and the believer is passive. God is active. The believer is passive. This is a spiritual work. It didn't begin with man. It began with the power of God and his willingness to give spiritual life. It, gets, it goes on. He rescued us from a domain, a spiritual domain, that's called darkness. This later on is going to be talked about as being a domain that is controlled by Satan. People outside of Christ are not neutral. Um, I don't, I'm humored by the movie that's about 15 years old now called Oh Brother Where Art Thou? But it's not really a humorous movie. But in one case in that movie, Clooney says of um, one guy that's in the car with him, he'd sold his soul to the devil. Two of the other guys in the car with him had just got baptized. He said he was unaffiliated. Now, there is no such thing as being unaffiliated. You're either in the domain of darkness or you're in the kingdom of God's dear son. It's not somewhere in between. You can't hedge your bets. So we're delivered by God the Father. We're transferred. You ever seen a transfer company? When you deal with a transfer company, they show up. You say, I want this taken somewhere else. They pick it up, they put it on the truck, and they transfer it. You may pay the bill, but you don't do the transferring. God the Father is the one that's doing the transferring here. It's God's work, and it's called a work of redemption. We'll talk more about that in a different week. But it's all here seen as God's work in which he acts upon us. And we come to the awareness that God has done something in our lives. You're going to hear a testimony that's going to sound something like that Sunday morning here. But I can remember it just as clear as a bell. I got run out of my pagan group. They didn't want me anymore. And as the song said, they hustled me right out the door. All I can tell you is in a matter of weeks, I was hearing the gospel. In hearing the gospel, all of a sudden I found out I'm believing the gospel. This is very strange. If I'm believing the gospel, what about all those girls? What about all that drinking? What about all? I'm believing the gospel. What? in the world's going on. <laughs> it was like that. Now, I woke up. More like I was shaken awake. 
I wasn't a Christian. Now I'm a Christian. I wasn't a believer. Now I'm a believer. I can tell you and everybody in that group that ran me out of their group, they didn't want me anymore. And they sure knew that I wasn't in any group that belonged to Jesus. They knew that. But now I'm over here and people are going, Shazam, what happened to the boy? All right. God does this. It's a powerful work. It's an unseen work. It's an active work. It's a spiritual work. I was changed. That's what happens to people. Man is seen as being acted upon by God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. God changes a man's stature, his status. He changes his life. He changes his future. Everything's new. The person has been born again. They were not a spiritual person. Now they have spiritual life. True spirituality begins then. Without that, there is no true spirituality. There is nothing except paganism. When we look at this and we see this, the obvious illustration of this is the man who wrote this epistle, Paul. He was Saul of Tarsus, and in 1 Timothy 1, down around verse 6, he said he was a violent aggressor and a persecutor of the church. By the time he writes 1 Corinthians, he can write 1 Corinthians 13 about love. What has happened here? There has been a spiritual revolution inside an incredibly intellectual man. St. Augustine tells the story. He had grown up in a tremendously loose lifestyle with money and with intellectual connections and social connections, and he became a believer, and at some point in time, he was coming back, and I believe it was back into the area of Rome, and this girl that had been his girlfriend ran up to him, and she's holding on to the sleeve of his garment and saying, Augustine, Augustine, and he's not paying her any attention. And she's pulling, Augustine, Augustine. Finally, she says, don't you recognize me? And Augustine says, yes, I recognize you, but you don't recognize me. Augustine had passed out of death into life. The problem that we're dealing with today so much in the church is people are churched. That's what we're dealing with. And it's hard to get them unsaved in order to see them saved. But it's a necessary work. There is this reality that has to take place. In the second place, a person, a spiritual person, knows this. And this is one of the big stumbling blocks in the church and outside the church. This is my father's world. Now that song was written by the organist down at Independent Presbyterian Church in Savannah, Georgia. So when you go and look under the author of that book, and you go down and look in the history of Independent Church, there's a little plaque down there to their organist. Same person. 
This is my father's world. To a great extent, this is where the battle lines of true spirituality are engaged today for you and for me. We either live and move and have our being in the God who created this world, and we accept the explanations that we find in the scripture, or we're in chaos, in a moral and secular morass. There's no escape. You cannot play free and loose with this doctrine. I remember one time they asked me to speak at a crisis pregnancy annual banquet, and I thought, what in the world could I possibly say? I mean, these people have heard it all said before, and by certainly a lot better than me. I thought, Lord, what in the world? Well, I'm reading through the Bible, and I thought, well, that's, that's what you want me to say. And so I stood up, and I said, text for this, this evening's message is Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And from that, you can make an argument for life. And you cannot find any room for a philosophical position of death. God is about life. But this is just the tip of things that we have to come to grips with. Notice what it's saying again when you come to verse 15. Speaking of Christ, Christ is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. Now this is dealing with the origins of our understanding of God. It's a doctrine called ontology or being. And before there was a world, God was. God was in the sense of having no beginning. And God was and existed in that eternity past, as we refer to it, in Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit existed. Here we're told that God the Father, under the agency of the Son, in verse 16, through the agency of the Son, all things were created. It says, in heaven and on earth. Now, the the language becomes, what do we know that is not comprehended here? So that's, that's the reason for the language. Heaven and on earth, what other categories do you have? This is a way of saying everything. Then he goes on and he says, visible or invisible. Now, I know we can play fast and loose with the language and get terribly technical and say we can't see molecules, we can't see atoms, we can't see all these things. Now they're telling us there's such things as quarks. And quarks are the things that are much smaller than even molecular composition. But by mathematics and other electrical processes, they're able to determine there's got to be something way beyond everything we see. This is not the language that we need to be understanding here. This is comprehensive. It's saying everything. There were no quarks until said, God said, 
let there be quarks. Whatever he said, whatever he called them, that's what we call them today. He called these things into being. And so when we say that, Christ is the one to whom everything was designed, brought into being, and then we're told here sustained in being, and then we're told that there are things, again, that are spiritual. Where God is a spirit, there are powers and principalities and rulers and authorities, and these entities are at work in the world, and in many cases these categories are in reference to adversaries to the spiritual God. They're spiritual forces, but they're antagonistic to Christ, but we're told that these things are all submissive to Christ, and all you have to do to understand a just kind of a, like a pistol shot of what that means is to read the opening chapters of the book of Job. These things are not able to function, in, in a sense, autonomously and under themselves. They're in rebellion, but they're not out of Christ's control. Now, when we look at this, the problem comes for us that we look at the world. We don't look beyond the world. But when we look at the text, the text takes us beyond looking at the world to the person. And we're told that this world was not brought into being randomly, but by a person. So the reflection that we see in the world is not a random uh, happening, but something that was brought into being by the mind of Christ. And so that what we see in this world, this is why the man can write the song, This is my father's world. It belongs to him. It belongs to Christ, and we need to comprehend it that way. But what's happening to us is like what happened to me in the psychology class in the 10th grade, and it happened to me in other uh, academic situations as well. If you turn on the television, it's on the Weather Channel. If you turn on any of these other environments in which you gather information, the information that's being fed to you is coming for a worldview that is not spiritual, it sees this world as time plus chance plus material. And the problem then becomes for us, if we do not understand that this is the Father's world, then we lose the personalness of this world, we lose the spirituality of this world, and we're overcome with the thinking of the world. And so we have to come to grips that Christ the eternal Son of God brought this world into being and that he sustains it. Now, again, you can go to the opening verses of the book of Hebrews where it says, through whom he created the world and he upholds all things by the word of his power. Or chapter 11, verse 3, by faith we understand that the worlds were created by the word of God. Or you can go to James or John chapter 1 and you begin to see verses there in verse 3 and 10 where it says that there's nothing come into being that has come into being apart from Christ. Over and over again, you go to the Old Testament. In six days God made the heavens, the earth, and all that in them is. 
And this affirmation is over and over that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It's said poetically. It's said dogmatically. It's said in a thousand different ways. The spiritual people of God have not just in our time come to an understanding of a conflict over this in their lifetime. This is an ancient problem. It's just that it has a a, a much more pervasive attack against it during our lifetime. But the scriptures here are saying if you're going to have a true spirituality, it's going to be on the basis of understanding that this is the Father's world. Now, in one of our churches where our children were growing up, there was a young man. This young man was afflicted. Right here on his back, he had a mole. It was dark, dark brown. It was thick. It stuck out from his back close to an inch and a half. It had big black hair sticking out of it. It was awful. Now, the parents were somewhat comforted that he had that because people that had the affliction he had, often the opposite of it, but the same affliction would be an internal tumor in the brain. So they were comforted. He said, only got this. That's not as bad. Guess what? He had both. As he got into his 20s, the thing that was in his head began to manifest itself. He had to have brain surgery. I don't know how many times they've cut this thing and tried to remove it, but it's a terrible affliction. May I tell you that my three children are happy and slappy? They're just goofy little kids getting on in life. This kid, he doesn't have that freedom. There are Christian people that are in the church. And I truly believe that they've asked and believed, and I think that God has worked in their heart and mind, but they will not accept the doctrine that God created the heaven and the earth. And as a result of this, their lives are much like the life of this young boy with these tumors. They're not going to get as far in life in the Christian life, they're not going to get in far in the Christian life is the person who comes to a genuine and sincere spiritual acceptance of the truth that God made the heaven and the earth and all that is in them is. When we come to understand this, we look at this world and we see a world created by an infinite personal God and it bears his stamp And scientists who have understood this have been able to understand, although they don't know exactly what's out in front of them that they can't see or can't figure out, they know that if they continue to pursue this in faith and with diligence that it's going to be unlocked and revealed. And this continually shows itself up in the history of mankind, in the history of science in which Christian people are involved. A third thing that we need to see in this passage is that God graciously places you and me in just the place that he wants us to be 
in the self-same way that he placed Paul, Timothy, or this man that is their pastor, Epaphras. Now, I want to deal with this more in the future in the area that you are where you're supposed to be. And you can either live in thankfulness or you will live in envy. You will live in some sense of of feeling that you're in an adversarial position. You will live in some sense of rivalry. You want to be there, but you're somehow stuck here. That is a huge problem with people today. They think they're bound, but in reality, you are placed. An infinite personal God, you know, I I can remember coming to the church here a number of years ago, and someone said to me, what have you been doing for the last few years, John? I says, well, I've been going around the southeast working with a bunch of churches that were in trouble. He, she, the person says, well, I guess you've come here now, huh? <laughs> I thought I, I probably should have rephrased what I said and said it just slightly differently. <laughs> but, you, but you see, the reality is you were there and you were over there and you were someplace else and God did this here, he shaved this off there, he filled you there and he placed you here now. And you can either do like the lady wrote when she says, what does she say? Bloom where you're what? Planted. Well, one last thing. A spiritual life by a God who created you and by a Savior who redeemed you is purposeful. You weren't created for nothing and you weren't saved for yourself. You are created with a purpose, and you are saved with a purpose. Paul is going to say we've got to glorify ourselves, or glorify our Lord in our body. We want to try and develop those two things in the next couple of weeks. Now, pray with me. Father in heaven, help us to see these things, to see that not only fearfully and wonderfully made, but filled by your spirit and placed where you want us to be to do the things you have for us to do and help us to learn how to love you and serve you spiritually, directly, and personally. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.